Um, I feel like uh, we've already had several sermons on joy this morning. I don't know if y'all watch Christian, but in Christian's smile when he sings, like that's a sermon on joy. And Nico, as he's leading us in worship, that's a sermon on joy. And so um, you're going to get another sermon. I'm going to give you another sermon on joy. And, uh, and this, I feel like, is just gravy on what we've already experienced together. And I, I, uh, I can't think of joy without picturing a yellow girl with blue hair and a green dress from the Disney movie Inside Out. From, from the time I saw that movie, every time I hear the word joy, I hear Amy Poehler's voice, and that's what I picture. If you haven't seen that film, I encourage you to go out and watch it, and even if you pride yourself on being dead on the inside, you will feel things. That movie will make you feel. Uh, but the movie is set uh, inside the emotional life of an 11-year-old girl named Riley. And inside her emotional life, we are introduced to five characters, joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. And I love how the character disgust is described. She's described as the one who protects Riley from being poisoned both physically and socially. And so you've got these five different characters, and and we get to go on a journey of what it's like to be an 11-year-old who has to move across country, leaving all her friends behind and start fresh. So the whole movie takes place inside her and and you're seeing how these, these emotions all navigate with one another. But in the story, at the very center of Riley's emotional life is joy. Joy is really the one in charge. Joy is the one who controls all the other emotions. Now, even though we mostly see inside of Riley during this movie, we also get a few glimpses inside the grown-ups. We get to see inside Riley's mom and Riley's dad. And when we get inside of Riley's dad, we see that anger is the emotion controlling all the other emotions. And when we get inside Riley's mom, we see that sadness is at the control. That sadness is what controls all the others. Now, I found this to be a very interesting choice by the filmmakers, that the child was controlled by joy and the grown-ups were controlled by anger and sadness. What would you say is at the emotional center of your being? Right now, what would you say? Are you controlled mostly by joy, by anger, by sadness, by fear, or by disgust? The theologian John Stott says that the mark of a true Christian is joy, that the center of a Christian is joy. I think what the filmmakers are trying to say in the film is that joy is okay when we're kids, but as we grow up, because you and I face so many different disappointing circumstances, because we encounter all kinds of suffering, that it's almost silly to keep joy at the center. Amy Bloom, a writer for the New York Times, wrote an essay about our obsession as Americans with the pursuit of happiness. Now, when we think of joy, we often think of happiness, and there is a connection between the two of them, but there's also a distinction. But I want you to listen to what Amy Bloom writes about happiness. She says, the real problem with happiness is not those of us who pursue it, but happiness itself. Happiness is like beauty. Part of its glory lies in its transience. It is deep, but often brief. To hold happiness is to hold the understanding that the world passes away from us, 
that petals fall, that the beloved dies. No amount of fashionable scowling will keep any of us from knowing and savoring the pleasure of the sun on our faces or save us from the adult understanding that it cannot last forever. So one might conclude that it's better not to pursue happiness because anything that brings you joy will not last. I remember uh, when this first hit me. I was eight years old, and I was auditioning for my first real play. And it was a real play and a real theater. It wasn't a school play. It wasn't a church play. It was like with adults, and it was a real thing, and it was the play Oliver. And I went in. I'd never done anything like that before, and so I wasn't expecting much. I definitely wasn't expecting to be up for the lead part of Oliver. But as I started auditioning, they started calling me back for the part of Oliver. And so, you know, as I went through this process, the more and more I went through the process, the more and more I wanted it. The more and more I realized I was born for this. Like, this was my moment. And, um, and so we get through the process, and I'm at the final callbacks, and there's three boys. There's three of us who are up for Oliver, and they're going to select two boys to play Oliver. So I get through that, and I remember the next day just waiting by the phone, like all day, like I could not wait to get the call that says, congrats, Zach, you're going to be Oliver. And, and the phone rang, and I answered the phone, and I remember still the kindness in the director's voice as she told me that she is so excited to have me as one of the orphans, and I would possibly get one line. And I remember in that moment just being devastated. I remember being so disappointed because I had wanted it so bad. I didn't know I wanted it when I went into it, but by the end of it, I wanted it, and I was sorely disappointed. And you know, if I look back on my life, I really think from that point on, from that, that phone call when I was eight years old, I have tried to keep myself from wanting anything too much, trying to keep myself from not hoping for things, to kind of live under a foreboding joy, as Brene Brown calls it a life that's characterized by the belief that if there is joy, it's only a matter of time before it goes away. So you might as well not enjoy it too much. You might as well not allow your heart to be in it too much. And I remember this affected me even when I was um, getting offered this job here at Summit. I, uh, you know, I'd gone through a, a five or, or four month process. And, uh, and when we got to the end of that, John Parker and his family invited me and my family out to dinner to offer me the job. But I had so convinced myself that John had invited me and my kids to dinner so that he could tell me in front of my kids, thanks, but no thanks. Okay, so, so this, had, this had a profound, that phone call when I was eight years old had a profound effect on how I've lived my life. And my guess is that most of us have had an experience like that. Do you remember what that was for you? That moment when you went from being a child to being a grown-up? That moment when joy left as the control center of your emotional being? Maybe when fear took over? because you began thinking about all the things that could go wrong, all the things that you could lose, or maybe when anger took over because you kept running up against blocked goals, or maybe when uh, uh, sadness took over because life just doesn't seem to work the way you always dreamed it would, or maybe disgust. Maybe you've chosen a life of cynicism and sarcasm to protect yourself from being poisoned. 
I think it's very significant that Jesus tells us if we want to be able to see like he sees, if we want to be able to really understand this kingdom that he's bringing about, that you and I have to become childlike. That in order to be able to understand the world as Jesus understands the world, we have to have childlike faith. We have to have joy at the center. So how do we get it back? If it's not at the center now, how do we get joy back in the center? I mean, we can't just go back to the naivete of our youth, right? We can't unsee some horrible things that we've seen. We can't unexperience disappointment. We can't undo sin that we've done or sin that's been done against us. So what do we do? How do we get joy back? Well, Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. What does that mean? How does fixing our eyes on Jesus get us joy back? That's what I want us to talk about this morning. And we're gonna actually look at a story in the gospel of Jesus's very first miracle, his first miracle that was at a wedding. It's in the gospel of John and it's in chapter two. So if you want, you can look there with me. It should also be printed in your bulletin. I'm gonna read John chapter two, starting in verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. So the first question we have to ask ourselves when we read this story is, why did Jesus choose this as his first miracle? Why did Jesus choose to show the world who he was by turning water into incredibly good booze? And not just a little bit. I mean, this is a lot. Did you hear what it said? Those jugs were 20 to 30 gallon jugs. Those are so much bigger than anything you find at a KA party, right? I mean, these are huge jugs. This isn't just a little bit of wine. This is a huge amount of wine. Why would Jesus choose as his first miracle to turn a dying party into an incredible feast? Because that's what he does. Because that's what he came here to do. Yes, Jesus came to suffer. Yes, Jesus came in humiliation and humility. Yes, Jesus faced trials and suffering. But all of that was preparation for his role as the ultimate master of the feast, as the master of the great banquet, 
Jesus, in a sense, with this very first miracle says, hey, you know all those old stories, all those Dionysian tales of, of forest running wild with wine and, and dancing and revelry and feasting? That's nothing compared to what I've come here to do. In fact, the prophets spoke of this. The prophets, as they spoke of the Messiah, spoke of a Messiah who would turn a dying party into an incredible feast. Isaiah 25 says this, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Jesus says, of all the things I could tell you about me, and there's so many things I could tell you about me, the first thing I want you to know about me is that I've come to bring a party. I've come so that you may have joy. This is so significant. The, the, the one who in his earthly ministry would make the lame walk, who would give sight to the blind, who would even raise people from the dead, chose as his first miracle wine at a wedding. I feel like we, we, we miss this a lot. I feel like there are a lot of people, and there are, there are a lot of people who are not worshiping the God that we worship today. In our city alone, in the last census, we know that 1.7 million people in our city want nothing to do with our God. Why? How can everyone not fall in love with a God like we see in Jesus? A God who came to turn a dying party into an incredible feast because they don't know that's why he came. Because a lot of times you and I, we forget that. We don't live like that's true. I have some friends who I'm always trying to get to come to Summit. And, and you know, I'm the preacher and I'm like, hey, come check out Summit. And they won't. They just won't, they don't want to have anything to do with church. And a lot of times they'll say, you know, I grew up in the church and it's just not for me. I never fit. I was never, I was never the right type of person. And then usually they say something like, and if I'm honest, I'm just not ready to stop having fun. But you see, they don't get it. They've missed it. They don't know. See, to them, Christianity has been presented as a life of joyless abstinence. Just suck it up. Just say no. Stay out of trouble. It might not be very much fun now, but it's way better than burning in hell forever. That is the narrative that most people have about Christianity, but that's not Christianity. And with Jesus' first miracle, he lets us know that. Jesus' first miracle completely disrupts that view. Jesus, in a sense, is saying, hey, look, you can reject me for a lot of reasons, but you can't reject me because you want to have fun. I am the Lord of the feast. I've come to make the world run with wine. I have come to bring you unending joy. So that's the first thing. That's the first thing that we need, to, we, need to, we need to understand and take from Jesus's first miracle, that Jesus came so that you and I might have joy again. So now how do we get that joy at the emotional center of our being? If the mark, if, if John Stott's right, and the mark of a Christian is, is joy, how do, we, how, do we, how do we get that joy? Especially when we find ourselves in disappointing circumstances in situations when, in which we're a lot of pain. Again, we fix our eyes on Jesus. 
And I think the key to understanding this whole passage is in the fourth verse. Mary comes to Jesus and she says, all right, they're out of wine. Now, this might seem like a weird thing for Jesus' mom to be worried about and a weird thing for her to come and bring to Jesus. But in the cultural context, it was actually very significant. Now, you and I, we live in a culture that makes a big deal of weddings. It's like a $70 billion industry. And so, and so you know, like wedding, and we have those shows, Bridezilla, and, you know, there's all kinds of things about weddings. But back in, in the time of Jesus, the wedding was a huge cultural experience for an entire community, for an entire village. And they usually lasted a week. And everyone in the village was expected to come and attend the festivities. And really how your wedding went, how your wedding feast went, played a lot into how you ended up having a standing in the community. So your wedding was very significant. And running out of wine at your wedding, that's not a good symbolic start to your marriage. Running out of wine suggests that the best has already passed. Now, some of you are are probably getting married soon, or some of you want to be married one day, and you need to know your wedding day does not need to be the best day of your marriage. You do not want the best to already be in the past. Your wedding day should be a foretaste of the joy that's to come. And so Jesus' mom comes to Jesus and she says, they have no more wine. And this isn't an unimportant, ridiculous thing that she's asking him. And then Jesus responds in verse four, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. I spent a lot of time thinking about Jesus's response because it's always seemed odd to me. And I always assumed that Jesus was like, mom, come on, like, why are you you forcing me to do this right now? I'm not ready to do a miracle yet. But immediately he does it. As soon as he says that, he immediately does the miracle. And so it doesn't really, that doesn't really make sense. So there must be something else going on in Jesus's mind. Then I read a sermon by Ed Clowney, who's one of the great American preachers who died a a few years ago um, on this text. And he does something in his sermon that has completely changed my view of of what's happening here. And he asked the question, what do single people think about at weddings? When you were single, or if you are single, and you went to a wedding, what are some things that you were thinking about during the wedding ceremony? Single people, a lot of times, are thinking about all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the wedding that they're currently at. They're thinking about their wedding one day, or they're thinking about, will I ever be married, or what will my spouse be like? So you can be there and experiencing a wedding, and your eyes can be a million miles away. And as I've officiated weddings, I've begun looking out at the congregation, I can see it. I can see that there are people with with this faraway look in their eyes and they are thinking about a wedding that they hope will one day be. Well, Clowney suggests in the sermon that Jesus, as a single man, is thinking just like every other single person thinks at a wedding. He's thinking about his wedding day. He's imagining what his wedding day will be like. God uses a lot of metaphors in scripture to help us understand how he wants to relate to us. He's the metaphor of a king to a servant, a shepherd to a sheep, a father to a son. But I think he most wants to relate to us as a husband to a wife. 
He wants us to feel known and pursued and loved and covered as profoundly as a husband is supposed to with his wife. And throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we see God use this metaphor over and over again as as being our bridegroom. We see it in Isaiah 62 and Hosea, the book of Hosea. We see it in uh, Ezekiel 16. God sees himself as the bridegroom and us as those who give ourselves to him as completely as a wife to her husband. And Jesus feels this way as he's walking the earth. In fact, in the book of Matthew, someone asked Jesus, hey, why do your disciples not fast? Why aren't your disciples depriving themselves like the rest of us religious people? And Jesus's response to them is this, do the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's saying, I'm the bridegroom. He said, I'm here. I'm taking a dying party and I'm turning it into an incredible feast. I am here to bring you joy, not a joyless abstinence. And at the end of the book of Revelation, as we get to the very end of the Bible, the last picture that God wants us to see is of this wedding day. It says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. When Jesus' mom approaches him, I imagine that Jesus is seeing that, that he's been daydreaming, that he's been imagining his wedding day. He's imagining the day that we, his bride, say to him, all that I have, all that I am, I'm completely yours and you're mine. And if that's true, if that's what Jesus is thinking about, all of a sudden his response makes a lot more sense. Because not only is Jesus thinking about the joy of his wedding day, he's also thinking about what it will cost him to bring about that day what it will take for him to provide wine for his own wedding feast. Verse four, he says, my hour has not yet come. Again, this reveals to us so much about where Jesus' mind is at at this wedding. My hour, whenever Jesus talks about the hour in the gospel of John, it's always in reference to his death, to his passion. So as Jesus is thinking about his wedding day, he's also thinking about his death. Mary says to him, hey, they've run out of wine. They need wine for the wedding. And Jesus says, it's not my time to die yet, mom. Which I imagine if Jesus is your son, you often thought he was weird and odd. And some of the things he said to you, you're just like, I don't know. And you see that with Mary. Mary, He says that to Mary. Mary's like, hey, do whatever he says. Like she doesn't even like acknowledge that he's just said something pretty morbid, right? And, uh, but, but, but he's thinking about his death. Now he knows to provide wine at this wedding, it's not gonna cost him his life. But he does know that to provide wine and joy at his own wedding, it will cost him his life. He realizes the only way that he'll be able to experience the joy that he's observing happening at this wedding celebration is for him to die. Now, you might think, all right, we're going down the speculation a little bit far with this, but what, what I think makes it all come together is in verse six, the way in which Jesus performs the miracle. It says in verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing. What is 
ceremonial washing. Well, before the Jews went into the temple, it was their custom, it was their practice to wash before they entered the presence of God. What did that do? Well, it didn't do anything. It was just a sign. It was just, it was just a symbolic way to signify that they acknowledged that they were a sinner, that they had missed the mark, that they, that they hadn't been good enough, that they were dirty, and in order to be in the presence of a perfect and holy God, they needed to be cleaned. With Jesus' first miracle and the way he performed that first miracle, he's telling everyone who's there exactly who he is, what he came to do and how he came to do it. He's there so that you and I could be washed clean, so that you and I can be seen as a beautiful bride dressed all in white. But in order to drink the cup of joy with us at his wedding feast, he would have to drink the cup of eternal wrath against, or the cup of wrath from eternal justice. There's a scene in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, and what I'm about to describe to you, if you've never seen the movie or read the books, it's gonna sound like gibberish, and I understand that, but for those of you who have, you're gonna track along with this illustration. But in this, uh, it's the sixth book. Harry is on uh, a mission with Dumbledore. They're just starting this mission to try to defeat the evil Voldemort. And there's these horcruxes that have to be destroyed in order for Voldemort to be obliterated. And so they're on this mission to find this one horcrux. And if you remember the scene, they go into this creepy cave and, and they're in a boat over a lake. And, and in the lake, there's all these bones and skeletons kind of you know, coming up to the surface. And they're making their way across this lake and they get to this little island in the middle of the lake and they have to walk up this mound. And at the top of the mound, there's a basin that has a potion in it. And at the bottom of that potion is a horcrux, is, is a little locket that needs to be destroyed. But this potion that, that surrounds the locket has to be drunk first. They have to, have to drink all of the potion out of it. It is meant to protect it from being destroyed. And Dumbledore says to Harry, he says, hey, no matter what I say, no matter how much I beg to, to be released from this, no matter how much I, 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 I tell you I cannot drink another sip, you have to make me drink it all. And so then he begins to drink it, and, and, and then you just see him writhing in pain. He's in so much agony. And if you've only seen the movies and you've never read the books, you, you, you kind of miss this. But as he's drinking that potion, all these memories of his past sins keep coming to mind, and especially the memory of his complicity in his sister's death. And the pain of, of seeing his sin like that is, is just excruciating. And he's begging Harry, saying, please don't make me finish drinking. And Harry kind of forces him to drink it all until it's all gone. Well, Jesus, when he came to earth, he knew that he was going to have to suffer and die. But as he drank the cup of wrath, he would not be faced with his own sin or his own complicity. He'd be faced with, with ours, with the world's. And Matthew records it this way in his gospel. He says, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. 
And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may, be, you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time the same words again. So then why did he do it? Why did he drink it? In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why did he drink it? Because he pictured us. Because in that moment, he saw you. He saw me. And I believe he saw us specifically. We were the joy set before him. And we were enough. We were enough for him to face the cross, to scorn its shame. You and I are Jesus's joy. If you've ever been a groom, you have an experience uh, that's, that's, that's one that no one else gets to have. You get to see your bride coming straight towards you. And as a pastor who gets to officiate weddings, I, I get to see that happen over and over again. And I have a vantage point that those in the congregation don't have. You see the bride walking towards him, but you don't see her coming straight for him. And I often get teary-eyed when this happens, and not because the bride is always stunning, because she always is, but because I always try to take a moment and look at the groom's face when he sees her for the first time. Because in the groom's face, in that moment, no matter what ends up happening in their marriage, in that moment, I see the resolve of a man who is willing to, to, to vow his complete undying faithfulness to the woman before him. Sometimes even a dying faithfulness to her. When Jesus says, I am the bridegroom, what he is declaring to you and I is not only is he willing to lay down his life for us, but that he will, and in fact, he has. When you look at the groom, you can see the joy of the one set before him. When you look at Jesus, you see that we are his joy. We are Jesus's joy. Is he yours? Is Jesus your joy? No matter what the circumstances are. Now, today could be hard for some in this room, and I'm sure it is. I'm sure today is hard for some in this room. Maybe uh, you're, you lost your mother this year, or maybe um, you had a mother who wasn't a good mother, who wasn't a motherly mother at all. And so today is just a painful reminder of what you didn't have that you should have had. Or maybe you want desperately to be a mom and, it, and it's just not happening. Or maybe you find yourself in a situation where you're gonna be a mom and you weren't expecting it. How do you get joy at the center when circumstances tell you it, it's dumb to put joy at the center? Over and over again, the Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus because when you look at Jesus, you see that you are his joy. 
in the midst of your circumstances, Jesus looks at you and you are his joy. Let me apply this one other way. Let's, let's talk about marriage. Uh, many of us are unhappy about marriage uh, because either we wanna be married and we're not, or because we're in a marriage and we realize it hasn't turned out to be all that we hoped it would be on that wedding day. We think really the best has already been. It's in the past. Ed Clowney, in this sermon, he talks about Jesus sitting there amongst the surrounding joy and sipping the coming sorrow. Picture that for a second. Jesus is at this great wedding celebration and everyone is enjoying the best wine that they've ever tasted and Jesus is sipping the sorrow that is to come. What does that mean? It means that you and I, no matter what we find ourselves in, as we are in a sorrowful world, you and I don't sip the coming sorrow, we sip the coming joy. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Knowing that whatever we experience here on earth, if we have a bad marriage, if, if, if our marriage is going south, we know that Jesus is our true bridegroom. And I know for guys, this is a hard metaphor to get your mind around, but, but all of us guys wanna know that we have what it takes, we wanna be affirmed, and sometimes we don't get that. We want that from our wife and we don't get that. Well, in Jesus, we have that. So if you find your circumstances awful, if you find your circumstances disappointing, you look forward to the fact that Jesus is your joy. But now let's say you have a pretty good marriage. And Kelly and I sometimes have a pretty good marriage. Sometimes we love each other well. Sometimes we, we serve each other. We put each other's needs before the other. But if I turn our marriage into the place where I find my joy, I'm gonna crush my marriage. Because everything good that I have here is just a foretaste of something better that's to come. So instead of us being a people of foreboding joy, we can be a people of foretasting joy. So that when good things happen in our life, when we experience a good um, a marriage, we don't put all the pressure on maintaining that. We say, oh man, if this is good, imagine how much better it will one day be. Because the minute I make my marriage or I make anything of this earth my ultimate joy, I put a weight on it that was never meant to hold. I would put a weight on Kelly saying, all right, you now have to be a perfect wife. You now have to affirm me on, in ways that I, that I desperately need. I need to find all my hope and happiness and self-worth on you, and that will crush her. But if I can look at her and taste the good things and say, man, this is just a foretaste of what's to come. There's a freedom there. And if things are bad, I can say, man, this isn't the end. This isn't all there is. Jesus said in John 16, 22, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that that's true. And Jesus, I thank you that, uh, that you found us worthy of being our bridegroom, of laying down your life for us. That while we were still sinners, you chose to die for us. You saw beauty in us that wasn't even there. Father, I pray that as we move forward, that no matter what our circumstances are, that we would find the joy 
that cannot be taken away from us. That we would look at you, Jesus, and see that you found your joy in us so we can find our joy in you. Father, be with those of us who are in hard places right now and remind us of the joy that is to come. And Father, thank you for the moments in our life where we get a small taste of the party that's to come. In Jesus' name, amen.